we will end our time in this little mini uh, section, a little mini series in verses 1 through 9. We're going to end that this morning, and then the remainder of the book of Philippians will go rather quickly uh, because the remainder of it is in very large chunks. What we've been studying has um, necessarily been uh, divided. It has to be that way, and, and as we move forward, it will go uh, rather quickly. But just to remind us where we are, we've been talking about standing firm in the Lord, what it means to stand firm in the Lord. You remember Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So the command is stand firm, and he says how to do that by saying, in this way, stand firm. And he calls this church his beloved twice in verse 1. He says, you are loved. I love you. You are my brethren. You are my joy. You are my crown, and I long to see you. And he sets up these six principles by saying that, by saying, I love you. I know you're saved. I'm going to confront you. I'm going to admonish you. I'm going to encourage you. But it's not at all saying you're not saved. It's because you are saved, because you claim the name of Jesus Christ, that I'm going to encourage you to stand firm in the Lord. And so I want to read verses 2 through 9 just to give us our context. We'll look through them briefly, and then we will spend the rest of our time in verse 9. Paul writes after saying, You are my beloved, and this is the way you are to stand firm in the Lord. He writes in verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Six different ways that Paul tells us we are to stand firm. In this way, in these six ways, we will find firm footing, solid ground, spiritual stability. The first way in verses 2 and 3 are living in harmony, being reconciled. He calls out these two ladies, but the principle applies to us all. And we've discussed uh, how we are to be reconciled, why it should be a race to reconcile with one another, and how appropriate to be reminded of that yet again as we come to the Lord's table. Then he says the second aspect or the second way that we are to stand firm in the Lord is to rejoice in all circumstances. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The third aspect was found in verse 5, be known for a gracious Humility. We translated that word gentle spirit to gracious humility. Be known for that. Let that be your reputation, so much so that everyone knows you for it. 
The Lord is near. He is close to us, yes, but he is uh, returning. His, imminent is, uh, his return is imminent. It's on, um, it's at the doorstep, so to speak. He's here. He's near. He's ready to break through. He will judge those that have oppressed you, and he will also judge you. And then verses 6 through 7 give us our fourth point. Don't worry. Pray instead. Not don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Pray instead. And that's obviously in verse 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but pray for everything with thanksgiving. And God's peace will guard your hearts and your minds. Last week, we saw the fifth aspect of standing firm, and that was in verse 8. Choose to dwell on the right things. Choose to dwell. This is a choice you must make. What you think about will dictate who you are. Remember, we talked about um, you aren't what you think you are, but what you think is who you are. You aren't what you think you are, but what you think is who you are. And so we must choose to dwell on the right things. And Paul gave us a, a great list of eight different things, specifically six aspects in that list, and then two just general umbrella statements of what we are to think about. Then we come to verse 9, and I want to read um, a a guy who wrote a commentary on Philippians. His last name is O'Brien, and he says it this way. I think it's helpful. He says, it is appropriate, it is inappropriate to drive a wedge between verses 8 and 9. There is a direct connection between the things at the end of verse 8 and the things at the beginning of verse 9. Verse 9 is closely conjoined with the preceding verse. You can see that with the word things. Dwell on these things, end of verse 8, and then beginning of verse 9, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So Paul's talking about you need to dwell on certain things and you need to live in a certain way, and all of it has been modeled by Paul. Somebody might get to the end of verse 8 and say, how are we to dwell on these things? What would it look like if we were to dwell on the right things and the right things alone? It's answered in verse 9. This is the way you are to live. If you dwell on the right thing, you will live the right way. Paul will not separate thinking from practice. Um, If you have wrong actions, it's based in wrong thinking. But if you have right thinking alone without any action, then the right thinking is useless. It's pointless. Right thinking must lead to right living. If you think about the right things, you must then put them into practice to live in a right way. So you would ask Paul, okay, Paul, I've got the list in verse 8 of what I'm supposed to dwell on. I'm going to try and dwell on that. How am I to do that? How am I to dwell on these things? What would that look like? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 9 tells us what it would look like. Uh, This passage is familiar to many of us, but 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way, therefore, he's saying, since there's only one who's going to receive the prize, you must run in such a way that you get that prize, that you win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But instead, so if you were to ask Paul, how do you live this out? What does it look like? What's the first step to living out right thinking and right living? I think he would answer by the word that he uses in verse 27. I discipline my body. I make it my slave. 
so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Discipline. That word discipline is the word in the Greek, gymnazo, where we get gymnasium from. I take my body to the gym. I take my mind to the gym. I take my actions to the gym. And I work out so that I will be able to think the right things, live the right way. It takes serious work. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 uses this as well, this word discipline, to train yourself, to discipline your body, and it is profitable. Paul says, do this. He tells Timothy, do this. Discipline yourself to live rightly. I think discipline, or the lack thereof, is probably one of the biggest issues in modern evangelicalism today. Um, If we're honest, we like the idea of having everything at our fingertips instantly, right? Everything needs to be faster, uh, more quickly accessed. Everything is um, becoming faster. That's always the new ploy on any electronic gadget. It works faster, and it works these many seconds faster, and that's why you want the newest, latest, and greatest. I've heard it referred to as microwave Christianity. We just want to be able to say, okay, I know what I'm supposed to be. Let's set the timer for 30 seconds and ding, I'm done. A day goes by, I worked hard, and I'm glorified. I should be like Christ tomorrow because of my work today. The reality is, whether we like it or not, the Bible tells us that we are not to live in this microwave Christianity world. We're we're crockpot Christians, right? God saves us and sets us on a timer, and, and then we just start stewing and and growing and it takes forever even when we die we will not be perfect when we the 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 second before we die we will still have sin we're dealing with that's why death and entering into heaven is going to be such a glorious thing because in that moment sin will be done away with we will be glorified in heaven but i think So often we think, if I just think the right things, if I just live the right way now, I'll be perfect. Paul says it takes work. You must discipline yourself, and it is a very challenging task every second of every day. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all of the outstanding, outstanding men and women of God. Read about Henry Martin, David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, the Wesley brothers, and Whitfield. Read their journals. It does not matter what branch of the church they belong to. They have all disciplined their lives and have insisted upon the need for this. And obviously, it is something that is thoroughly scriptural and absolutely essential. So I think Paul would remind us I'm about to tell you something that you are supposed to live the way that I've exemplified living. I have practiced certain things, and you're supposed to do the same. But never forget that the first step in that is to discipline yourself. You must discipline your mind based on what you think, and then you must discipline your actions. It's all about thinking and doing. So, verse 9, this sixth step. If we are to stand firm in the Lord, we're going to say it this way. We must obediently practice the truth that we have been given. If we are to stand firm in the Lord, we must obediently practice the truth that we have been given. We must do it obediently. We must practice that word is in our verse. And we must practice what has been given to us, handed down to us. And so for this morning in verse 9, 
we're just going to break it up into three different sections. We'll see the prerequisites for practicing this truth. We're going to see practicing this truth itself and the promise that comes from practicing this verse. Let's start with number one, the prerequisites for how we are supposed to obey and practice these things. Verse 9 starts with, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. So Paul's talking about himself, and he uses four different um, words to describe what we are supposed to be looking at and looking for. Number one, he says, you are supposed to look at the things that you have learned from me. The things that you've learned from me. This is personal discipleship, if you will. Paul's saying, I taught you when I was with you face to face. We were rubbing shoulders. You knew who I was. I knew who you were. And we worked together. Even as we read in Titus 2 this morning, um, God designed discipleship to be the means by which we will grow. Older men disciple younger men. Older women disciple younger women. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to think. This is the way you are to behave. And this is why. So Paul says, the things that you have learned from me, I taught you many things in your midst, and you are to live them out. The word learned there, by the way, is uh, the um, noun form of, or it's the verb form of the word disciple. Um, so a disciple um, is somebody who is a learner. And Paul's just using this word learn to say, those of you who have learned from me, those of you who have been discipled by me. I want to show you another place that it's used. Go to Luke chapter 6, verse 40. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus tells us very clearly what a learner or a disciple or he uses the word pupil what they are supposed to do luke chapter 6 verse 40 jesus says this a pupil is not above his teacher that word pupil that word is the noun form of our word learned in verse 9 so a disciple is not above his discipler but here's the goal of discipleship But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like who? Will be like his teacher. What's the goal? Paul tells us, the things that that you've learned from me, that I've taught to you, that I've discipled you in, you have been discipled by me, those things you should practice. Why? What's the goal of discipleship? According to Jesus, the point of being a disciple is to do exactly what your discipler is doing. You learn to be like your discipler, the one who is teaching you after you are fully trained. And so Paul says, I have been with you, I have personally discipled you, and the things that you've learned from me, you must do. You must live out. In Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 20, Paul taught the scriptures publicly in Ephesus and in Asia Minor, teaching from house to house, going to their house, being with them. Discipleship is very formal in that there is a teaching aspect that goes on. We can maybe go through materials, go through a book of the Bible, go through a separate book that will teach us about how to live life. But it's also very informal. A disciple must always be asking the question of the one that is discipling them, why do you do what you do? You just did that. Why did you do it that way? Why didn't you do it this way? The disciple must learn from the one who is teaching And so Paul says, look, you've been with me. I've been with you. You've seen my example. I have discipled you, and you must practice what you have learned from me. 
Secondly, uh, another prerequisite, we must be discipled. We must learn from somebody. And then we must receive. He says, the things that you have received from me. That word received is a very, very technical term in the Greek. And it literally refers to the receiving of Holy Scripture. There are other Greek words for receiving something or getting something or attaining something. But that word received is used only in the New Testament to refer to the word of God being received by a congregation or by a people. Um, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to show you a place where this is used. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13, Paul says, It's for this reason that we also constantly thank God that when you, here's our word, received, very technical, and he specifically says, received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So Paul says in Philippians 4, you have received writings from me, holy scripture from me. You have received the truth of God, God's very word. Practice it. I love how 1 Thessalonians 2 says it. The Thessalonians are being praised for receiving the word, not as just word from men, but the word of God for what it really is. To understand how to live out the Bible, you must believe it is the word of God. Not just some book of fairy tales or book of fables or book of helpful moral hints. This book is God's word. It is spoken out by God himself. So when he speaks, we must do what he tells us to do. The Thessalonians received it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And they believed it, that it would perform its work in you who believe. We too must receive the Bible as the authoritative word of God. What is true? What is what we must obey? We must guard it. We must pass it on. And so Paul says, the things that you have learned from me as I discipled you personally, and the things that you have received from me, the teaching of God's word, You are to live these things out. You must live these things out. Thirdly, he says, not only learned, received, but he says, you've heard from me, or literally it would be you heard about me. The things that you have heard about me. So you've learned things from me when I was in your midst. You received truth, the truth of God's word from me. And now you heard about me, my personal reputation, if you will. The things that the Philippian church had heard about Paul. What did they heard? What did they know? They have heard that he's been put into prison, but they heard with Silas he was singing. When they were beating him and mocking him, he was singing praises to God. They probably heard from the jailer. You remember Acts chapter 16. They probably heard from the Philippian jailer that when all of the um, prisoners were let go, when the earthquake happened and all the prisoners were let go, that Paul stayed and said, no, stop, don't leave. Not a one of us will leave. And as the jailer was about to kill himself, he said, no, 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 believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We haven't left. And the jailer was converted, not thinking about himself, thinking about the jailer and thinking about all of the other people. They also learned from Paul and heard this of his reputation that other people around him were preaching the gospel, trying out of envy and strife to annoy him, to offend him. And Paul said, who cares? What then? As long as Jesus is preached, it doesn't matter. They had seen, they had known, they had heard of the reputation of Paul. He's rejoicing in jail, not taking offense at the others who are causing strife. 
he's facing a potential execution and he's not anxious for anything, but he's rejoicing. He's living out exactly what he's been telling them to live out. And so all Paul says is, what you've heard about me, do it. Live that way. You know my reputation. Live out the things that I am known for. And finally, number four, he says the things that you've seen in me. This is very similar to heard about me, his reputation. Now it's the things that you've actually seen. My personal example, when I'm in your midst, when I'm with you. That's why he says in chapter 3, verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Whatever I'm doing, you do it too. I'm doing it for a reason. I'm doing it because I love Jesus, and you should do it too. So Paul says, whatever you've seen in me. Turn back to Thessalonians, this time 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul says something very similar in chapter 3, verse 6. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition you have received from us. Wives, because you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. You know the example. We lived out an example in front of you, with you. That's why we always need to be together as a church. As church families, we need to gather together, whether midweek studies or the off nights that we don't have studies. We need to gather together so that we can enjoy seeing the example that others make for us, that others lead for us. They show to us of how we are to live our lives. So Paul says, what you have heard about me and then seen in me, that is what you must live. That's what you must practice. Back in Philippians 4, verse 9, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Four things. Two, the first two are teaching. I've taught you. And then the last two are example. I've lived it for you. I've taught you and I've also lived it. Because the reality is most of the truth that we live out is not taught. It's caught, as they say. Most of the truth that you and I live out and believe is caught. Somebody acts a certain way in front of you and you are wondering, why do they do that? Why do they live that way? And, and then you realize the foundation for it and you start living the same way. It's caught. And that's why Paul says there are two aspects of how we are to live that are teaching. And there are two aspects that are an example. Truth that is taught and truth that is caught. So those are the four prerequisites for being able to practice. We must know. We must have a foundation. We must have something that we live out. Secondly, what are we supposed to do with these truths? Paul tells us very simply, practice these things. All of the things that you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice them. Do the exact same thing. The word practice is in the present tense. Literally, be practicing these things continually. Never not practice all that's left for us as believers is to do what we know is right. We must do, we must live the way that we know we ought to live. Turn to Luke. Luke chapter 6. We're going to go back to Luke chapter 6. I want to remind us how simple the life of a believer is supposed to be. How simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. As disciples, as learners, as those who are being taught, 
Our job is really simple. Not easy. Our job is really simple. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me, this is Jesus again, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what? Do what I say. You say that you are following me as a slave follows a master, but then you don't do what I tell you to do. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. Why don't you do what I tell you to do? The life of a believer is one of very simply doing what God tells us to do. That's it. Our life is to do what God has told us to do. If I can borrow from Nike, just do it. That's it. That's the bottom line. God tells you to do something. As Paul says in Philippians 4, just do it. Practice it. Live it out. Go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 21. This was a question uh, that the people had raised to Jesus saying, um, your, your family's awesome, aren't they? And they love you and they're outside wishing to see you. And Jesus responds in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, My mother and my brothers are these pointing to his disciples and followers, who hear the word of God and what? And do it. A disciple of Jesus Christ is one who does what Jesus tells them to do. Very simply, you must obey. You must do what God tells you to do. And the beautiful thing is when you do that, he calls you brother. He calls you sister. He calls you friend and family. Turn over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Verse 16, Jesus, this is the upper room. Jesus says, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than one who sends him. So you've got this relationship, slave, master, one who's giving rules, one who's doing what has been told. And then verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if what? If you do them. A disciple must obey. A disciple must do what his teacher tells him to do. Turn over to chapter 15, verse 14. Chapter 15, verse 14. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Paul very simply says, practice the truth. Practice the truth. And he learned that from Jesus because Jesus kept saying, just do it. Do what you know to be true. Ultimately, doing what you know to be true is an evidence that you are following Jesus. It's an evidence of salvation. But you might say, okay, true, genuine believers often know more than they do, right? We would say that. They often know the truth, and they struggle with doing what is right. Why is that? I found six helpful reasons why we struggle to live out Paul's very simple command of practice the truth. We know the truth. We've been taught it. We have received it. We have caught it by example and reputation. We know the truth. Why do we struggle so often to do it? Six different reasons. Number one, we struggle to practice the truth because some people honestly enjoy theoretical knowledge more than practicing the truth. They just love knowing things and they don't ever think about doing what it is that they know. They just love to know stuff, accumulate knowledge. Now, Lord willing, that's none of us here, but... The truth is that we know people like that, and we ourselves can struggle with that too. Knowing the truth to win an argument, knowing the truth to look better than somebody, but not knowing the truth to practice the truth. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones again says it this way, you can be a great student even of the Bible and live a life contrary to it. Alas, there are many such people. There have been many whose chief hobby in life has been the dissection and analysis of the Bible, but they were rather hard and harsh and often failed in some of the elementary principles of the Christian life. And then he says this, listen very carefully. It is the masterpiece of Satan to make us put theory and practice into separate watertight compartments to make men so interested in the book that they forget to apply its teachings. And we know that's true. What we know to be true, and we leave it in a compartment, we don't live it out. That's why Paul says, what you know, what you've learned, you must practice. You must do it. A second reason why we struggle to do what the Bible tells us to do. Um, I would say it this way. We are confused because we look to experiences instead of looking to the Bible. We look to experience instead of looking to the Bible. Um, we, we read this in our book uh, this last week in our home group, and I think this is so helpful from uh, Tabidi. Those of you who have been reading the book have read this um, statement. He says it this way, All of us encounter various teachings in the Bible that challenge, confuse, or provoke us. Often we refuse to accept these teachings because of our dullness and sin in our hearts. And I would add to that because of our experiences. We can evade one verse here or there that displeases or confronts us. I think the reality of the, the church in America is that we long to live off of our experiences. And we see reality through our experiences. That's just modern existentialism, right? Uh, based on who I am and what I've done, that determines who I am and what's true. And I think that oftentimes we read the Bible with the lens of our experiences and say, how does the Bible match up to our experiences? It should be the other way around, brothers and sisters. It should be whatever this book says to do is right. Whatever this tells me to do, I must do it. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's a reason that God tells me to do it. And regardless of my experience, the culture, the context, or social issues, this book is true, and I must practice it. Number three, often people are waiting until they feel like obeying before they obey. James 4 is helpful in this. You know it, James 4, 17. To the one who knows what to do and does it not, to him it is sin. Notice it's not to the one who knows what to do and feels like doing it and doesn't do it, it's sin. No, forget the feeling. You must do what is right. We've used the example before. How many times would we um, say, if we're passing the plate down the aisle to take the offering, and you don't feel like giving your hard-earned money, and you have the check, and you've written the check, and you're holding the check, and you're saying, I don't feel like giving this. Which is better, to say, I'm going to hang on to it until I feel like it, or to say, you know what, I don't feel like it, I don't know why, but that's probably sin in my own heart, and I'm going to obey regardless of how I feel. Which is better? Jesus tells us it's better to obey. It's better to obey. And the reality is, based on Philippians 4, if we do the right thing, feelings will come after that. We must do what we know is right. Number four, and this is probably the one that hits home to most of us, just pure laziness. We struggle to obey the Bible because we're lazy. The, 
Bible tells us to do very difficult things, many very difficult things. That's why I said this is very simple, but it's not easy. There are so many things that we must do, the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we um, interact with people, and we just become lazy. Number five, we become distracted. We become distracted. Um, When am I going to find the time to be able to do all these things? God tells me to do all these things. How am I going to be able to get them all done? When am I going to do them all? Or we start doing one thing and are distracted by the cares of the world. And number six, many people wait to obey what they know until they get victory over other areas in their life. They kind of compartmentalize their life and they say, okay, I want to gain victory here, and so I won't go and do these things over here until I gain victory here. And the reality is God has given many things for us to do, and the constant failure in all of them is just a reminder that we need Jesus. It's a reminder that we need grace. Don't ever think, okay, I'm going to get this down 100%, and then I can move on to another thing, get that down 100%. No, that's perfectionism. It's um, moralism saying, I'm going to just become better at life. That's not going to work, and you will wind up frustrated. What are we to do? We are to obey. We are to live out the spiritual disciplines. We are to evangelize. We are to serve. We are to be stewards of our time and money. We are to read the word. We are to meditate on the word, study the word, memorize the word, pray. So can I just encourage us, if we are going to live out what Paul is saying in Philippians 4 9, to practice the truth that we know, we need to start today. Start now. Start by reading the word regularly, on a regular basis, every day. And if you struggle with that, as most people do, I think Job is helpful. Job 23.12. Just write it down. Job 23.12. Job says, I have treasured your word more than I treasure my food. Um, A great principle, if you desperately want to start applying the truth of Scripture by diving into this book every day, is don't eat your physical food until you've eaten of your spiritual food. Don't eat of your physical food until you have eaten of your spiritual food. If you do that and you rigidly stick to that, um, I don't think you'll go hungry. I really don't. I think you'll make the time to be here in the Word. Some helpful truths, practical truths. It takes six to eight weeks to learn a new habit, and then if you do that habit for over six months, It becomes second nature. If you stopped doing it, you would feel like a part of your routine is gone. So just take it a day at a time and obey what you know to be true. Dive into this book, learn from the word of God, and do what you know is right. Tomorrow, uh, October 6th, will be the anniversary of William Tyndale's death in 1536. He was burned at the stake for translating this book, for giving us this book. He died so that we can have this. Let's celebrate his martyrdom and the fact that he is with the Lord now for translating this book. Let's celebrate that tomorrow by diving in here, by saying thank you, Lord, for using him to give us this book, and let's not take it for granted. So Paul says you must practice these things. You must obey these things. You must do them, the things that you've heard, the things that you've learned, the things that you've seen and received practice these things. So we have our prerequisites. We have to learn, receive, hear, and see the truth. Then we have the actual practice of these things. We must do it, just obey. Then back in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, here's the promise. Here's the promise. 
That's our motivation. If we do these things, if we obey, the God of peace will be with you. And you say, okay, wait, but God is omnipresent. He's always with me. And that's true. So this is an extra special promise. The God of peace will give you peace because he will be with you in a way unlike he is with anyone else. Unlike anyone else, those who disobey, those who do not care, God says, I will not be with them, but I will be with you who obey. I will be with you. John 14, verse 21. For the sake of time, just write it down. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and my love will abide with him. I will be with him. My love will rest on him. God will be a friend to us, will bless us, will protect us, will care for us as one of his own. The God of peace will be with you. So our sixth and final step in spiritual stability is obey. Obediently practice the truth that has been passed down, that has been given to us. Look at the lives of those who do this well. Look at the lives of those who are living obediently to the word. But in conclusion, this is, this is the reality. Two, two questions for us. Are you discipling somebody? Are you pouring your life into somebody? Titus 2 says we must do that. There's always going to be somebody older and younger than you. And Titus 2 tells us that older men should disciple younger men. Older women should disciple younger women. Are you seeking somebody to teach, to train? Do you know the truth to be able to train them? Maybe formally, but also informally. Do you live the way that God commands you to live? And secondly, are you learning from someone? It takes two people in Titus 2 to live out those commands. Younger men must learn from older men. Are you seeking out someone to learn from? Do you walk into church and think about, okay, why does Tim Regan do this a certain way? Why does John Fire Eisen say this a certain way? And see their example and talk to them about what is the foundation? How do you live the way you live? Why do you think what you think? We must seek someone to learn from and we must seek somebody to teach. So are you imitating Paul? Are you following his example? Just briefly, as we close, listen to his example here. Think about these six, just in the grid of these six things that Paul has given to us. Being reconciled, rejoicing in all things, not being anxious for anything, letting a gracious and humble spirit be known to all men, thinking and dwelling on the right things, and practicing the truth that he's been taught. Just think about those six areas of Paul's life. Was he reconciled to people? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Written on the heels of writing a very difficult letter to the Corinthian church to say you are not acting like believers and you're not obeying the word of God. He says, I want you to know, I want to make sure you know I've written this with tears, that I love you, that I care for you. May it be known there's no division among us. I love you. He pleads with tears that he be unified to people and they be unified to him. Practically, you remember the whole split on his missionary journey with Barnabas and John Mark? That probably didn't end too well. Um, You remember John Mark had deserted and was pretty much a mama's boy. And Paul says, I've got no time for him. He is not coming with me. He's useless to me. He's just going to stop me, slow me down, drag me out. I don't want to do that. So Barnabas, you can take him, but not me. And there's a sharp disagreement. In the, in the text, it's a 
very graphic language to say there's a, it's a, it was a messed up, divided relationship. But at the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, bring Mark so that I can see him because he is useful to me. He is a friend to me. Bring him. Somehow he reconciled with Mark, probably had to apologize and ask forgiveness for calling him a mama's boy. But he says, bring him. I want to be with him. Paul modeled reconciliation. Paul modeled joy. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Did he do that? Yes. In prison, he's singing Acts chapter 16. He's always happy. If you, if your mission in life was to ruin Paul's day and make his day terrible, you were probably the most miserable person in the world because you cannot do that to Paul. No matter what you do, if you if you persecute him, if you beat him, he says, it's under the Lord, rejoice. If you stone him with stones, as they did in Lystra, he just wakes up, comes back and says, I'll keep preaching the gospel to you. If you cut his head off, he says, uh, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You cannot win with him. He was a man who exemplified joy to the uttermost. Gracious humility. Did he exemplify a gracious humility? Absolutely. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And that's not just him saying, I, I, this is what I have to say because I'm a righteous man. This is him saying, of all the sinners that I know, I am the worst. He knew his own sin. He was not prideful about it. How about not being anxious, praying instead? Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse seven, when he had the thorn in the flesh, he says, I'm going to pray about it three times. Take it away. I won't be anxious. God says, no, you, you have to have it. It's not leaving anytime soon. And he says, okay, I'm going to pray. God's grace is sufficient. Thinking about the right things. Did Paul model dwelling on the right things? Remember he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Believe the best, hope the best. Love does all these things. It chooses to believe the best. You remember that's lived out in the book of Philemon. Paul says, Philemon, I could order you to do what I'm telling you to do because I am an apostle and you're not. I helped establish your church. You're under my authority. I could order you to take Onesimus back, even though he ran away, even though you have the legal right to kill him. I could order you to do that, but I believe that you are going to do what's right because it honors the Lord. I believe that. So I'm not going to order you. You can do it. He believes the best about Philemon. What about following the right example? What In all of this, when he's saying, just do what I do, isn't that a little bit egotistical isn't that a little bit um who are you paul to be saying this turn to first corinthians chapter 11 first corinthians chapter 11 this is where we will end i think if paul were here today he would say do everything that i do live exactly the way i live as long as it's the way that jesus would live 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me. Do exactly what I do. Imitate me. It's where the Greek word we get, um, our word mime or mimic. Mimic me. Everything I do, just do the same thing. Why? Because I am of Christ. I mimic everything Jesus does. I mime what Jesus does. Think of how Jesus exemplified these six areas of spiritual stability reconciliation he didn't need to be reconciled with anybody because of his sin but other people who sinned against him and weren't even racing to reconcile back with him he would track down you remember john chapter 21 with peter he said 
do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He would reconcile with everyone and say, no, though our relationship has sin in between, I will do what it takes, even going to the cross to get rid of that so we can be reconciled. Joy, I think that Jesus was the most joyful man who ever lived on this earth, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, even going to the cross, he was filled with joy because he knew that it would bring about the um, salvation of many to glory. Gracious humility, uh, Jesus exemplified that with having power under control, with being meek. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he didn't open his mouth when he was wronged or accused or slandered. Uh, you remember the sons of thunder when they come before him and they say, um, tell us or we're going to tell you to do something for us. And we want you, before we tell you, we want you to say that you will do whatever it is that we're about to ask of you, whatever we ask. And instead of Jesus saying, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. No, I'm not going to promise you that. I don't even know what you're asking of me. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, what, it is, what is it that you would have me do for you? Graciously humble, even to the point of fools around him feeling like, oh, okay, this guy's actually listening to me. Not being anxious, praying for everything. That's what Jesus did all the time. He was always praying early in the morning, late at night, all the, through the night. And then in his darkest hour in Mark 14, he says, Father, please let this cup pass from me. Thinking about the right things, Mark chapter 8, verse 33. You remember when Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, man hasn't given that to you, but my Father in heaven's revealed that to you. And then he tells them that he must go and suffer and die at the hands of the Gentiles. And Peter says, "Is will never be. Lord, that will never come to pass. And Jesus says something very interesting. You remember, he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says this, for you are not placing your thoughts on God's thoughts, but on man's thoughts. You're not thinking about the right things. Jesus thought about the right things all the time, even in going to the cross. Following the right example, he didn't follow an example. He set the example. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of the one who has sent me. This is what we must do. This is what we must obey. We must follow. So, if Jesus is your example, if he is the one that you are miming and mimicking, then you have every right to say with Paul, do what I'm doing. But I think that as we come to the Lord's table, we need to realize, and I I don't think it's going to take rocket science to figure this out, there are so many places in our life that we fall short of what Jesus would call us to do. That's why when we come to the table here, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we don't celebrate our perfection or the fact that we are kind of having it all together and getting better in things. We come to the table celebrating our brokenness. We come to the table celebrating the fact that all we have to offer is sin. We have nothing to offer Jesus. We aren't coming here saying, okay, we're holier than we've been, and therefore we deserve the grace of God. We come saying, if there are areas in my life that I am more godly than I I was last month, it's only by the grace of God. I will discipline my body. I will beat my body. I will put it into submission under the word of God and obey, but that's only by God's grace. So as we celebrate this table, it must be a table that's celebrated with thanksgiving. Saying, oh, we've learned a lot. We've received a lot. We've seen and heard a lot. We know the truth and we fail time and time again. And that's why we throw ourselves at the mercy of the one who died to save us. 
to bear the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that we are called to live out exactly what it is that you have spoken to us. And we know that if we live these things out, we will walk with stability. We will have firm footing. But God, that firm footing only comes as we place our feet on the rock, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. If we try to do this on our own, we will fail time and time again. And that is why we come to celebrate over the Lord's Supper that it has been paid in full. God, I pray that as we prepare our hearts to take communion, we would look inward. We would look at our hearts and we would plead with you to test our anxious thoughts and to know if there are wicked ways in us and to do that work to reveal where we are walking in rebellion and stubbornness and that we would fight that and confess that as sin today and repent. And God, I pray that we would look upward to our Redeemer, the one who purchased us out of the slave market of sin, sparing us from the Father's wrath, dying the death we deserved, rising to newness of life so that we would have eternal life. May this be a time where we thank you for establishing this new covenant with us, not on the basis of anything that we could ever do, but on the basis of the one who did it all for us. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.